Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. The push for digital banking amid the growing emphasis on social distancing has put a spotlight on those organizations that have lagged behind the marketplace with digital delivery and digital transformation. But can lagger organizations pick up the pace where the rest of the world grinds to the halt? We are faced with a unique time in banking where organizations that have invested in advanced analytics, innovation, and digital transformation have the opportunity to leverage their customer experience and digital product offering advantages more than ever. Today's guest on the podcast is Jeremy Balkin, the head of innovation at HSBC. Jeremy is also the author of two books, Investing with Impact, Why Finance is the Force for Good, and Millennialization of Everything, How to Win When Millennials Rule the World. During our interview, Jeremy discussed the importance of innovation during times of disruption and how organizations can go further to illustrate empathy through innovation. So welcome to the show, Jeremy. Uh, we are obviously entering some uncharted territory when it comes to banking and everyday life. Uh, branches are closing, office workers are being sent home, and, and really there's no business as usual as it would be called. Um, that said, history shows us that it is possible to flourish in the midst of adversity, and people in any organization can come together to address the situation, learn, innovate, and become stronger in the long run. Um, Overall, how do you view the challenges and opportunities presented by today's crisis as it relates to innovation? Jim, thanks. You know, I think, if anything, the circumstances that we're in currently prove, and certainly for anyone that's, uh, that's still unsure or skeptical about the value of innovation and renewal, and it's no longer a nice-to-have, it's a must-have. And those who've recognized the power of innovation and su- successfully not only having a strategy but executing uh, that strategy will be the winners. And I think as it relates to the current sort of social distancing and social isolation and, and so on and so forth, if you haven't got a robust when, where, and how strategy for interacting with your customers and your people, right, on the other end, then you know how else are you functioning in, in this environment? And so therefore, those investments that have been made, the strategies that have been put in place and the hard work that's been done over previous years are coming to fruition today. And you know, innovation is, isn't, an, isn't, isn't an option. Right, it's an essential. It should be part of the DNA of any organization, regardless of industry. Well, and actually, if it hasn't been part of the DNA of an organization, I think now there's a lot of financial institutions that are being caught a little bit flat-footed. You know, they don't may not have a digital product that allows for completely digital account opening. They may not have a digital loan product. They may not have a way to use AI and advanced communication to talk to segments. And so they're caught to the worst common denominator in some cases. You know, at HSBC, how have you changed maybe what was on your table innovation-wise today versus, uh, let's say, three weeks ago? Anything changed? The table's the same size. It just has more people wanting a seat at it and there's more on it. <laughs> so three weeks ago, we were, we were having a team meeting, you know, mapping out what we've already done in our first 60 days of 2020 and saying, hey, we're at full capacity for the rest of the year. Three weeks later to this current you know, work remote environment and all the, the stuff going on, and not only has our productivity not decreased at all, in fact, it's had to increase because so much more has been asked of us from different business lines, different markets, different countries, in addition to the fact that I've said to my team that in this period of 
in some cases inertia or, or lack of clarity, that's when we got to go, we got to put the foot down. We got to triple down because it's through the uncertainty of others. That's when we are certain and that's when you make the biggest change. And we've seen that and we've, we've continued that and the projects we're working full steam ahead, whether that's using Zoom, phone calls or otherwise, people are hitting their accountabilities, which has given us a little bit of extra capacity to, to take on those extra projects. But the only thing that's changed is more is being asked of us, not less. Well, and again, that goes back to your first comment about the playing catch-up for organizations that weren't already structured this way. Obviously, at HSBC, and, and you're part of the organization with innovation, you're in a kind of a, a advantageous position because you simply have to shift the mentalities around what has to be done in an urgent versus an important format. But your structure for innovation and your guideposts for innovation are already there. You know, how does an organization that doesn't have that start from the stop? I hate to say this, but, you know, it's going to be very difficult in this environment if you have, you know, zero capacity to start. What I will also say, though, on the flip side is it's never too late to start for any organization in any industry to embrace, you know, innovation and renewal and growth. But that being said, you know, I think the current state of the economy and cuts and economic slowdowns, one of the things that I've learned and we've learned in the in the five years that I've been in HSBC leading innovation is a lot of our most successful projects started off as what I would call a no-cost pilot. And so that doesn't require any resources in real terms. And then, of course, when the pilot is successful, then you want to scale that, grow that, tweak that. And you need the resources. So a lot of it is just about grit and perseverance. And so I don't see this as a constraint at all. And I would say to those out there and some of my friends and other firms doing the same thing in the innovation space, you know, now's the time to, to really show your worth and the grit and resourcefulness. So, Jeremy, how have you altered your innovation initiatives that you may have had been working on, uh, you know, 15 days ago compared to now? Well, if anything, nothing's changed. We're even busier than we were three weeks ago. I recall we had a team meeting about a month ago, just recapping the first 60 days we've had to 2020 and just how, you know, giving everyone a pat on the back but say, hey, we've got another you know, 300 days to go in this year. We're at max capacity. So three weeks later to the world we're in now and everything that's going on, you know, where more is being asked of us, both locally and globally and through other businesses and, and functions within the bank. And, uh, you know, I guess it pays to be prepared and organized. And I guess the investments, both in personnel and platforms and procedures and policy and, and more importantly, execution over the last five years. I, as I said to the team yesterday on a Zoom meeting where folks are remote, I said, we're not slowing down. If anything, we're going to double down and triple down in these circumstances because in terms of, you know, folks working remotely and, you know, maybe thinking they can slow down a little bit, this is the time we've got to go even faster because we've got projects that are in real time, that are live, that we need to get done. We've got accountabilities. And uh, while people are, you know, thinking about how to slow down, that's the time to go even faster because we got more to do. And I don't want this year to get lost. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you look at those organizations. You're obviously in an organization that's an innovation leader, as our digital banking report reported on. And there's less than 15 percent of organizations that consider themselves innovation leaders. And there is a huge percentage, something like 37 percent that consider themselves fast followers and another 17 or 18 percent that consider themselves to be laggards. And I guess we kind of have to feel sorry a little bit for the, the organizations or certainly it's going to be hard to get ramp up. If you're a fast follower, if you're a laggard organization at a time when the consumer is demanding so much from organizations with regard to digital transformation, digital products, the ability to bank without branches, um, the, all these scenarios that we saw far in the distance right now are, are front and center, aren't they? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's a great point, Jim. And as usual, the digital banking report is spot on. So I certainly can echo the data. What I would also say is I often speak to C-suite executives and say, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's never too late to start an innovation program, which I absolutely believe, though I will say to your point of the premise of the question, starting that literally today and probably over the next sort of 30 days is going to be a little bit difficult given the social distancing and working remote and all the rest of it. Um, and if you don't have that in place now, it's probably going to hurt you significantly. But I have a lot of friends and peers who were doing my job, whether it's in other banks or indeed other industries in corporate America. And with the fear about a slowing down an economy, that's not an excuse to just kind of throw up the hand and say, hey, you know, innovation is optional for this year. If anything, some of our most successful projects have been no-cost pilots. And they started off with essentially small or no resources, getting something quick and dirty to, to an MVP stage, letting that pilot play out. Pilot's been truly successful. And then you need the resources to then tweak, modify, and then scale. And so don't let lack of resources or the perception of lack of resources be an excuse. If anything, to separate the winners from the losers when it comes to innovation, the true innovators in any industry are those who are gritty, who are resilient and resourceful. And this is the time to separate the best from the rest. Well, it's interesting because I think Gartner just came out with something this week that showed that a lot of the innovation that was done with Alibaba in their banking environment came during the SARS epidemic. And they actually saw that they learned how to build and to innovate differently. And it really brought the team together in the way they did it. And I think that's something we have to look forward to. Since you joined HSBC in 2015, you really positioned your organization as an innovation leader. I think it said that you have invested $350 million in a core system upgrade. You've obviously leveraged APIs for open banking solutions. You're testing the use of variables in the branches. And uh, I believe you've even introduced uh, robots, at least in one case, uh, in your branches. When it comes to innovation, you're doing a lot of unique things. What does it take to get the support of top management to be able to do these types of massive and very out there innovations? Yeah, it's, it's a great point, whether it's the wearable tech, robots, artificial intelligence, translations. So, I mean, we're doing a ton of stuff. We've done a ton of stuff. And this year, we'll continue to announce uh, you know, some really exciting things. I will say one minor point, Jim, you mentioned $350 million. It's actually closer to $500 million when you include the fantastically successful retail transformation program that we, we led here in the U.S. on top of the $350 million you mentioned for the core banking system upgrades. I will say that I joined HSBC in 2015, and the way I've been able to, to sort of, I think, be successful was if you think about me, right, I'm Australian. My parents, grandparents, grandparents are from Africa. Uh, I work for a British bank that has an Asian name. I live and work in New York. So you're not going to get a bigger outsider than me, <laughs> and especially in an insider's organization. So I think that diversity, that background, those skill sets, and those experiences as an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur as well, I think have actually given me the perfect conditions to be successful. And so when you think about getting support, right, it's absurd today to think about, hey, let's put a social humanoid robot in a bank branch. Let's trial wearable technology in a bank branch. Like they sound crazy. And yet imagine how crazy they sounded before both the initial pilot was successful two, three years ago, any more than how they both those projects have scaled across not only the US, but across other international markets for HSBC. And so part of getting that success, I would argue, and the support has been what I would describe, you know, in some ways, you could look at me and say, hey, I'm this 
odd man out and I've tried to be the odd man in. And I've tried to use my unique background, skill set, international experience to actually let the system work for me rather than against me in a place that's as complex, as globally distributed, as large and, and highly regulated as financial services, no less. And I think part of the success and support for projects has been, as I, I think I mentioned a bit earlier, about some of these projects started off as what I would call a no-cost pilot. And we quickly learned, we quickly tweaked, we upgraded, we developed the success. I'm a data geek, so I use information and to make the point and data to frankly tell the story. And I do that purposefully to set a tone of what I believe should be about accountability for everybody because data is accountability. And when those no-cost pilots prove to be successful and then you get innovation FOMO, as I like to call it, and then you need to scale, grow, tweak, modify, and then roll out, well, that's when you inevitably get the support that you need. And of course, success breeds success. So, you know, five years ago when I started HSBC, it's fair to say that, you know, I had some folks come in a, in a nice way, I'm sure, almost try to heavy me and say, hey, Jeremy, we don't do innovation in this industry, or you're not going to be successful without doing ABC. And, you know, I think we have been, I think some of the haters and the naysayers and the, the skeptics in the industry, you know, maybe aren't there anymore. And I think likewise, success breeds success, as I said. So, people across the bank want to be part of projects we're working on. And that's a good thing, right? Instead of five years ago, and it was a very lonely, isolated, barren journey, now we're building the momentum and we have the momentum to keep doing more and more is being asked of us. And I think, as I was saying to my team yesterday on a team meeting, that candidly, that's where you want to be. That's the society of success. Instead of folks working against us, they're saying, hey, how can innovation help us? How can we loop in the team to help us with this challenge, solve that problem and buy into it. And that's a very different state to the bank that I joined. And I'm really proud of the success we've had over the five years. And frankly, the next five years will be even more important. So HSBC is, as you said, a very international, very diverse. A lot of different organizations have been rolled up and you're responsible for innovation across the board. And, and obviously it's a big organization. Consumers have their moments that they aren't really in favor of you, and you have your moments when uh, you have to respond on a, on a dime. How do you stay agile within the organization to be responsive to consumer needs that can come from different angles at different organizations in different countries? You know, Jim, that's a really tough question in the sense that I don't like the term agile in the way it's been kind of misused in corporate America because I think most corporations are, are fundamentally structured to not be agile in a literal sense. In fact, they have almost competing functions that are designed to literally slow down the organization. So you can't be quote-unquote agile when the organizations are structured the way they are. But that also becomes an excuse for not doing anything to flatten the curve in terms of efficiency or indeed to remove some of those roadblocks, however unnecessary they may be, to get things done. And so we define innovation as, quote, doing something differently that creates value. You know, as Peter Drucker says, you can't manage what you can't measure. So let's create a definition, doing something differently that creates value. And of course, that definition is not specifically closed off to only digital, right? Every single person in the organization, from the security guards downstairs, the reception desk, the call center, the C-suite, the client relationship advisors can, quote, do something differently that creates value. So we don't have those guardrails that necessarily limit us because this is about changing a culture. And when you talk about customer needs, I often say that we have two customers. 
we have the customer who comes in every day and, or every other day and, and pays us money for a service or a product, our external customer. But we also have an internal customer, our people, our employees. So therefore, you know, we have to be listening to the internal customer also because I actually think it's a virtuous cycle between happy, productive employees and delivering an awesome customer experience. If you get one part of that equation wrong, it breaks the whole mold and the whole cycle. So you have to think about it, those two customers, and therefore be thinking about that quote-unquote customer experience with those buy lenses because you can't do one successfully without the other. It's not a sustainable solution. And that's why when you bring folks in from across the organization with both hard and soft skills, so in other words, you know, communication is key. So you want to bring folks at the front lines with you and realize and how to buy into these changes and realize it's in their best interest and, and, and work with them to design products and platforms and different things. And at the same time, get the top level, the C-suite to buy in as well through more what I would call hard communications, explanation, data, solving problems, showing both sides of the business case, etc. You need to do both. And when you get both, both top down and bottom up, then ultimately you get this kind of tidal wave of momentum to get things done, which of course then benefits the external customer too. And that's how you can move fast and be successful. But if you look at what you don't have in life, you'll never be happy. And so corporations, just because they may be structured in matrices with you know different silos, doesn't mean that you can just put up your hand, be the change, and go work with somebody else off the side of your desk or as a sort of a corporate side hustle within the organization and say, hey, let's solve a challenge together. It doesn't matter about the bureaucracy. Hey, we, we all work for the same place. Let's just go and solve a problem together. And I think that's one of the ways we've been successful by not looking at sort of arbitrary you know, borders, as it were, internally between silos and just say, hey, you got a problem, let's solve it together. Well, you know, you look at what's going to happen once we get back to normal, um, whatever normal is going to be. And, and obviously, financial institutions are going to be under some financial strain. So I'm wondering, how do we avoid, as an industry, innovating for the cost-cutting benefits as opposed to innovating for the customer service and customer experience benefits? That is a really good point. And I'm glad you raised it, Jim, because you know, one of the biggest frustrations is this term transformation that we often hear in, in the corporate world, which I think is unfortunate because I think the true essence of the word as it is intended is not necessarily as it's become in sort of corporate buzzword speak or corporate jargon, if you like. And transformation to the customer or to the shareholder thinks, oh, wow, great, they're going to innovate the hell out of this place. In many cases, what it really means is, hey, let's strip out a bunch of costs and, and play defense and then you know, feel good about ourselves. So I think part of that is about how you frame the argument. I've got no doubt that on the back end of, to your point about what normal looks like, a lot, you know, especially depending on how long this goes for and what the econ economic outcomes will be, you know, there'll probably be a, a ton of quote unquote transformation. But if it's a mere cost cut play, then it builds more skepticism and cynicism by both customers, employees, and shareholders versus actually trying to build new, resilient, innovative businesses. So I think innovation is not transformation per se. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because, you know, when we come back, we're going to be, you know, if it's a two to three month period, a lot of consumers are going to get very used to banking without branches. But on the other hand, banks are going to have a hard time responding to that with the possibility of, let's say, closing branches or releasing employees because everybody's going to be watching to see what happens. But on the other hand, the reality of the situation is, I believe when we come back, banking is going to be highly different than it is 
before this. And I think it's going to be that innovation focus. And it's going to be balancing, you know, what's good for the consumer, what's good for your internal organization, as well as what's good for society. And to that point, you, you've written a book about the potential for innovation and investment that you can make it both profitable and good for society. Can you explain a little bit about that perspective? Sure. You know, my first book, Investing with Impact, Why Finance Was a Force for Good, very much makes the ethical case for financial services in its broader sense. You know, that we can, to use the term, do well by doing good. You know, I think inherently, and especially in today's world, you know, I think entrepreneurship, wealth creation, employment, sustainable profitability, etc., that provides, you know, taxes for society, dividends for shareholders, that helps retirees, it creates employment, gives people opportunity, has never been more important. And I think that was lost in the kind of financial crisis of 2008. You know, maybe the pendulum had swung too far from the positive impact that it can have. And I think some of the argument of particularly why millennials tend to have a negative view of small C capitalism is because they haven't necessarily experienced the ethical capitalism where, you know, with enlightened self-interest as sort of Adam Smith, the moral philosopher, who's the father of capitalism as it was intended. So I think we as an industry, it's incumbent upon us to be the change, to shine the light, to show how and why the social contract that financial services has with the community, why is it not only an essential service, which by the way, we're seeing in this current status of social distancing because banks are still open, certainly retail branches are still open because they perform an essential function in society, but also how we can help those on the other end of this, whether it's what I call the positive allocation of capital, which I did a TED talk on in 2013 here in New York, which led to the first book. And therefore, you know, how do we play the role we can to be the guardianship of trust? Because at the end of the day, banking is a metaphor for trust in society. We perform a role that is important. And now is the time to demonstrate why and how financial services and bank at the front line of that financial stewardship for individuals, families, for small businesses, for, for non-for-profits, etc., is so important. And therefore, and this is something I'm really passionate about, Jim, and I'm, and I'm sorry for going off a little bit of a tangent, but I speak as often as I can to business schools, high schools, universities around the country and around the world, because we need the best talent to come into this industry with diverse perspectives, different set of ethics, a different set of the role of financial services in society to come into this industry. That's how you be the change. You know, if you want to change the culture, you need to change the, your people or, and bring in more good people and get bad people out. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about advocating for our industry, because I want the best and the brightest to leave high schools and universities and business schools, not necessarily to only think that they can have a positive impact on the world by going to work for, you know, not-for-profit organizations or government organizations or NGOs, however worthy and importantly worthy that those pursuits are, we need them coming into financial services too because it's just as important, if not even more important, given the role of financial services and allocation of capital to influence and inspire and help invest in and grow and build wealth and prosperity for billions of people. We need that same human capital. And so they have to consider financial services. And that's why I often say, if you want to change the world, join financial services. There's no better time. You know, on a personal note, I in looking at what you've accomplished and where you've gone and, and what you've spoken to even today, 
it's obvious that you, you're a highly motivated person that's driven by uh, difficult challenges. I think about how difficult it is to move a big organization like SCSBC, but it, even if it was just in one country, but uh, you're in multiple countries with multiple cultures and dynamics and people involved. But, you know, if I've done my research right, you also run multiple marathons despite having survived uh, extreme sports injury. That's tough on anybody's front, but it also says a lot about you as a person. You know, as, as more and more people are going to be working from home, as more and more people are going to feel a little bit down and there's a lot of push towards uh, kind of going into a corner and, and curling up, what keeps you motivated on a daily basis in, in a scenario and what can you help share with the people that are listening how they can, you know, stay motivated during this time of uh, stay at home and social distancing? Hey, Jim. Well, your, your research is correct, although I will say there was a couple of big injuries uh, that I've got screws in my, my leg and ankle and screws in my, my left arm, um, 14 of them, and a titanium plate. Some might say, including my wife, that there might be a screw loose. <laughs> and certainly the doctor said, yes, I know what you should do. You should run marathons. <laughs> well, a bit like Forrest Gump in my rehabilitation. I, I guess I started running and then kept going. But what I will say is this, and thank you for um, the recognition of the grit and the determination. I'm a highly competitive person, but I compete with myself. I want to be a better man, a better husband, a better brother, a better son, a better father, a better friend, a better colleague than I was this morning, than I was yesterday, and I was the day before. That's what drives me. And I also have a deep sense of personal ambition to prove people wrong about me, whatever their perception may be. You know, when I started my life and career in Australia, very far away from where I am today, you know, I was always the youngest in everything I did. And then I was told, I remember by a mentor of mine, hey, Jeremy, no one will ever take you seriously until, you know, you get to a certain age because that's just how Australia works. And I was kind of like, screw that. I'm going to prove you all wrong. So I came to America and here we are. Um, any more than prove people wrong when they said, hey, you can't do innovation in financial services. That's not how this place rolls. Well, you know, I think we've proved them wrong. Any more than when I survived my injuries and, you know, I am lucky to be alive. And, you know, I was told maybe you won't be doing anything significantly athletic going forward. And I guess, you know, like I said, started running in rehab and then running marathons ultimately. I guess the point is that you can do anything. The limitations we place on ourselves are just that, self-imposed. And so what drives me is to be a good person first and foremost. And I compete with the man that I was one minute ago, one hour ago, one day ago, because I want to be better. And that's how I want to be judged when it's all said and done. And I think that also reflects in my intensity of how I work, because when I survived, you know, I decided that this sort of second chance, if you like, that I was given, I wasn't going to waste it. And the type of professional, the type of person, the type of human, the type of colleague, the type of man that I wanted to be was going to be a different one. And I'm not going to waste any time because we don't know when our time on this planet's going to end. And so that also drives the output of what we're trying to achieve, right? Because our customers are people too. And I think the most precious resource we have is the gift of time. And so I view my competitors not as bank X or bank Y, it's time. It's a customer's time, the gift they're giving us to buy or sell a product or to service them. So how can we do it faster? How can we do it even faster? How can we cut out a process that gives them the gift back. But, you know, for folks who are at home and twiddling their thumbs and dealing with, you know, the procrastination, which which is inevitable, I, I hear you. I, you know, I've been counseling some colleagues and friends in the last week alone. You know, set some disciplines. You know, wake up every morning the same time you would if you're going to work or maybe slightly later because I guess you don't have to commute. 
have a shower, have a shave, get dressed, turn up just like as if you were at the office. It's okay to also go for a walk around the block. There's plenty of things you can do in your apartment or home. You can do squats, you can do push-ups, you can pace around to keep moving because the mental health is, is also intertwined with your physical health. And, you know, have a window open, breathe fresh air. And you know what? Be thankful. Be grateful. That's how I would sum myself up is gratitude. And I, I wear a kind of a rubber wristband around my right arm that quotes a Hebrew proverb that says, he who is happy appreciates what he has. And that's how I live my life every day. And don't look at what you don't have. Be grateful for what you have. There's always somebody worse off than you. But focus on being the best person you can be. And that's the advice I would give. That's how I live my life. And I didn't expect this, <laughs> this podcast interview about banking to get so deep and meaningful, Jim. But thanks for opening me up. And I ha was happy to share that. I'm happy to share that again another day if, if folks are really interested in, in wellness. Because I think it's an underrated part of corporate America that we should be talking about. Well, I think it's interesting because uh, gets back to the very beginning of our interview where you said, you know, when I asked you about, geez, is it time to do more innovation or to cut back a bit? And you said, you know, it's during times of adversity that the best advances can be made. And that goes on a personal basis as well as innovation. And I think I, I agree with you fully. Uh, people that know me know that I could not have been more excited by some of the challenges that have come about recently because I said, you know, I can pivot. I can adjust. I can make lemonade out of lemons. But it does take that internal gut and fortitude to say, you know what? My, my son once said in sports, he goes, you know, if I'm working out and training when other people are relaxing, I'm already moving forward and I'll be at a better place at the end of the road. And it can be said for innovation. It can be said for personal development. It can be said certainly for times like these. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate talking to you and, and looking forward to doing this again. Absolutely, Jim. Thank you. And everybody, keep being strong, keep being mentally tough, and we'll all get through this together. You know, what an interesting discussion with Jeremy Balkan from HSBC. You know, it's interesting because as you listen to him, you realize that it's the kind of leadership that he provides, the kind of enthusiasm he provides that helps guide him. But also, more importantly, when you look at HSBC, it's a huge organization. Sometimes it's hard to get the support and the investment to move forward. And, you know, rather than looking at today's situation and the potential on the short term to kind of hunker down, you know, he saw this as a tremendous opportunity to move forward, to do new things, to do things that weren't even expected two weeks ago because the consumer is adjusting, they're adjusting to the consumer. And, you know, it's also interesting to see how much he's committing to making sure that some of that innovation is done around the social good, as well as reaching out to millennials, those people that really can guide organizations going forward, especially in banking, where we may get stuck in our own shells too much and doing things as we always done them. So I think if you're a $1 billion organization or a $500 billion organization or bigger, I think this is a great discussion around what do you do with innovation during times of stress, during times of change, and for those organizations that did not put innovation at the top of the, the agenda, now's the time to do that because when we come out of all that we're going through right now, it's those organizations that take advantage of this time that are gonna be in the best position to succeed going forward. Thank you for listening to Banking Transformed, rated as a top five banking podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. 
While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.